0: Lieben came to our um, group. She's also from Ohio, but not from Columbus, Ohio. And um, she was wearing an Ohio State sweatshirt because that's what you do when you're a Buckeye fan. You wear the the, um, supporting clothes. So I took my girls a couple years ago back to Columbus to visit a friend who works at this big church. And they were having an event. And so we went to this event. And the girls like kept noticing, they looked around and they were like, half of the people are wearing Ohio State sweatshirts. And they were like, is it a special game today? You know, what's going on? I was like, no, this is just normal, like every day. This is how people dress in Columbus. It's kind of crazy. So there isn't a whole lot going on in Ohio. So like the Buckeyes are like what we go crazy about. So if you are a Buckeye fan, it means you really love um, your home team. But it also means that you hate the rival team. And the rival team is University of Michigan Wolverines. So just to show you how extreme this rivalry is, um, so if you are from Ohio and you choose to go to the University of Michigan for college, everybody will think of you as a traitor. Like that is like unacceptable behavior. And there are a few people who do that And then they come back to live in Columbus. And this is something that Midwesterners do. They put a flag outside of their house for the college team that they root for. Seems very strange here in New York, but that is just a normal thing. So lots of Ohio State flags. And then there'll be the random Michigan flag outside. And you can count on if that is what you're choosing to do, that your house is going to have pumpkins thrown in it, It's going to have toilet paper thrown over your trees because you are the enemy. Another extreme um, example is I have several friends who um, on Facebook, all of their posts will end no matter when they are like leaving a post um, on Facebook, whatever the content, they always end at the end with the phrase and Michigan still sucks. Like these are college educated, successful people, um, raising children and yet it's just like an acceptable acceptable practice for people in Ohio to like talk about how much Michigan sucks. All right, so that's just a, a comical example of a very real human practice of when we are in a certain group of people that it causes us to kind of hate or be against another group of people. So we do it with sports rivalries, but we also do it with politics. We do it with different countries. We can do it with different races or different religions. So part of what it means to be in a group means that you have to be against another group. But what about if you're in the kingdom of God? What does that mean? Who do you love and who do you hate? So we're continuing this teaching series today, looking at Jesus's message in Matthew chapter five, which is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is establishing what it looks like for his how his kingdom is going to work and who Jesus is and how he lives his life. And so at the very beginning of this sermon, he talks about who is flourishing, who is um, blessed in his kingdom. So it, it looks very different from who is we traditionally think of who wins in our society today and also who was winning in the first century when Jesus is talking about that. So the people that he talked about who are blessed, who are flourishing, are the poor. The poor who in their poverty are still able to trust in God that they are flourishing. Those who mourn, those who are humble and meek and kind, they are flourishing. Those who are hungering and thirsting for justice, they are flourishing in God's kingdom. Those who have mercy and show mercy are flourishing. And so I imagine for the people who were first listening to Jesus's message, they were probably thinking, "Okay, what? Do, how does that work? What does that look like in real life?" But for us, if we have that question, like, "What does it look like to be meek, or what does it look like to hunger and thirst for justice?" What we can do is look at Jesus's life, and that's what it looks like. And so, for his example, you know, what does it look like to hunger and thirst for justice? Well, sometimes it looked like Jesus taking the table in the temple and throwing it up um, to s- disrupt the injustice that was happening there. And at other times it looked like sitting down with a woman who he wasn't supposed to sit down and talk to a woman because women were beneath men or he wasn't supposed to talk to this particular woman because she was from the wrong group. She was a Samaritan and he, she was had the wrong reputation. And yet, In Jesus's hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, he was able to show her dignity and respect. Now, today we're going to look at um, who else is flourishing in God's kingdom. And so we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? I think using the word pure can be tricky in the church um, because sometimes pure makes us think of keeping all the rules, like being being perfect at keeping the rules. But is that pure in heart? Now, maybe you could say that is pure in your body or in your observance, or maybe even your pure reputation. Um, But it isn't necessarily the same as being pure in heart. Pure in heart is about your motivation. Is your motivation purely out of love for God? It isn't about what you get in return. It isn't about how other people view you. It's simply choosing to live your life in a way to show God your love for him. So I've seen lots of interviews with people. celebrities, and they talk about how hard it is for them to have, build really strong relationships, Um, whether it's friendships or romantic relationships, because they're always wondering, is this person, do they really like me for me, or do they want um, to be friends with a celebrity? Do they want what, how it makes them look, or, um, you know, the fame or the benefits of my wealth? And I think the same can be true in our relationship with God. Do we love God for who God is instead of how people view us or what God can do for us? So the pure of heart get to see God. And that is super, um, super helpful for me to know because what it means to me is that it isn't me keeping a perfect perfect record, perfect behavior that allows me to be in God's presence, to allow me to hear from God, to feel Him in my life. Um, what it is about is me loving him just for who God is. The pure in heart will see God. So who else flourishes in God's kingdom? Uh, verse nine says that blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Last week in our time together, Alex referenced how there was a group of Jewish people um, who were hungering and thirsting for justice. And they decided that the best way to achieve that was through violence. Um, They were known as the zealots. And of course, that is always going to be a temptation for oppressed people to strive for justice through violence. Um, But Jesus's approach was different. It was always to strive for reconciliation instead of retaliation. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker for us today? So let me just talk about a few things that it doesn't mean. Um, Peacemaking doesn't mean being nice. So for me, for a long time, I think that was my understanding of what it meant to be a peacemaker. It was kind of this idea like, be nice enough so that everybody doesn't get upset, right? That nobody gets hurt feelings, everybody's okay if you're, you know, that you are nice enough. And I'm learning that that isn't necessarily true. Um, So we're starting this book series or book club together this week, um, looking at the book, White Fragility. Um, It talks a lot about race conversations, especially how white people in America have um, conversations surrounding race. And so one of the things that the book talks about is this concept of white solidarity. So it's kind of this idea that many white people unintentionally, they aren't even aware of it, but that they will kind of um, be quiet when there are things that are happening that are Um, racially charged, insensitive, maybe even racist, um, intentionally racist, that, that white people are like, let's not rock the boat, that if I called that person out, that would make them feel uncomfortable, that, you know, my job here is to make everybody feel good. So, um, you can kind of perpetuate um, systems of oppression by just being quiet and, and, is taken on almost as agreement. So it doesn't always happen in conversations. It, ha- it can uh, happen in be- very many different situations. So as I was reading that, I was, um, I'm, was praying to God, like, can you reveal to me if there's something in my interactions that would be considered white solidarity? And instantly this um, moment in my life that I had kind of forgotten about came to mind. And so it was um, a, a woman of color friend of mine asked me to go to a court date with her. And so she had a white lawyer friend or a white lawyer and um, the white lawyer and her were talking and they were disagreeing um, about how to the case was going, how she should be represented. And um, they're, you know, having this disagreement, it wasn't, it wasn't mean, it's was just they weren't agreeing. And, but there was this moment in the conversation, where the lawyer turns to her client, turns from her, and looks to me, and starts talking to me and trying to convince me that what she was doing was the right thing to do. And I listened intently, I, you know, gave her, you know, my attention, tried to figure out what she was trying to, to say. And my friend got upset with me. And in that moment, I didn't understand why she was upset. I, you know, for me, I was just being nice, listening to this lawyer. Now I can look back at it and think that there was definitely some racial stuff going on in that moment where, uh a white lawyer would not agree to her own client and then turn to me to get agreement. And in that moment, I should have said, you know, um, you, you don't work for me, you work for her. So you need to talk to her and I'm just here to support her. So that's just an example. We all do it in many different situations where our motivation is um, to be nice but it isn't necessarily being a peacemaker. Another thing that peacemaking isn't is tolerance, all right? It isn't about tolerating things that are unacceptable in our society or even interpersonally. So being a peacemaker doesn't mean that you let people walk all over you, that you don't have boundaries or that you um, don't acknowledge your own values. That isn't peacemaking either. So here is a good definition of what peacemaking is. And this is from Scott McKnight in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. So he says, peacemaking is one who actively enters into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. So you're going into the middle and you're acknowledging that there are differences here between the people in the conflict, but you're trying to create respect and love for one another so that you can work together for solutions, even in your differences. And an example that comes to mind um, of a great example of what this looks like is the justice work that is happening in our neighborhood right now, um, that is led by our churches in this neighborhood, who, by the way, have many differences between us. And yet we d- decided to collectively get together and try to help um, our community with lots of justice issues. And the one um, that we're working on is allowing police and youth in our community to sit down and have conversations with one another. And so Jimmy is um, kind of our church's representative on Um, that on the justice uh, work being done. And so they've kind of decided what their main goals are. It's to have this round table. And what that means is that everybody's equal, everybody's voice is equal, where they are sitting down and talking. Um, We have youth who are 14 to 24 from the community who are engaging in conversation with the police in our community and just talking about the issues related to accountability and transparency um, and, and what the youth need in our community. Also working to disciple these young people in being justice workers in our community and partnering with a broad range of people in our community to work to find solutions of Um, The issues that we have in our community with um, safety and the community well being so here's a prayer that uh, Jimmy wrote for us to be praying and I think it's a powerful prayer. Um, So here's the prayer we have faith and pray that the Holy Spirit will prompt and ready the hearts of community leaders young people and the police to engage in the difficult work of repairing the relationship between our community and the police. That is a powerful prayer. And so I wanna thank Jimmy and Jessica, who in our church, both of them are working at this, um, on this effort. Uh, but also all of us get to participate in peacemaking by simply praying for this very important work to be done. In our community and through our our church's role in that work. So peacemakers will be known as children of God. So what that means to me is when people see us doing true peacemaking work, that they see it and they say, you know, they look a lot like their father. They look a lot like how God works. I don't know that that is always true, but hopefully, people would get to know who God is by watching how we work, especially in the areas of peace and justice. So, growing up, I really wanted um, to be like my dad, not just that I wanted to have his blue eyes, I wanted to look like him. but I wanted to be like him. I, I knew that he was a really good student. So I tried to be a really good student. Um, he was one of the few people, adults that I knew who went to college. My, my aunts and uncles didn't, um, my mom didn't. And, and I kind of wanted to be like my dad. So I, I decided I would go to college like my dad and I saw him being a real uh, leader in the church. And so that was something I wanted to do with my life as well. I looked up to my dad and I wanted to act in a way that um, I would be like him. And that is true for us. When we are being peacemakers, we are being like our father. And people will see that and say, we are like our father in heaven. So I feel like we need to ask the question of ourselves. Do people see us as being for others or just as people who are against the people who are different than us? Those who pray differently or worship differently or live differently or vote differently? Or do they look at us and how we live and see us as peacemakers? All right, there's one last group that are flourishing in God's kingdom. So it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness or justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So this is something that we see really throughout New Testament teaching whether it's in James or Peter's letters and many letters of Paul, where it talks about being persecuted or suffering, um, that we can still do that or have that in our lives and yet experience joy, we can flourish. And so um, being a part of God's kingdom means that here we will experience suffering. And yet still we are able to experience joy and flourishing. But here is my fear. My fear is as Christians in America, we can look at this verse and say, um, we are blessed because we're persecuted because of being part of the kingdom of God. And the problem is that many people see things as persecution that Jesus really isn't talking about here. Um, An example of that is, I've heard many Christians uh, talk about the persecution of uh, Christians in America because Starbucks Starbucks, um, doesn't market with Merry Christmas. Instead, they use Happy Holidays to kind of be more inclusive. All right, that's not really the persecution that Jesus is talking about in this verse. Um, But I bring it up because there was a a poll done in 2017 by um, the Public Religion Research Institute. And they researched and asked questions of a broad spectrum of people of all um, religious backgrounds or not even having any religious background. And they wanted to hear um, their impressions of religious discrimination in, in the United States. And what they found was almost everybody agreed with who was experiencing discrimination, what religions were experiencing um, discrimination and persecution in America, except for one group. And that group was um, the white evangelical Protestants. Um, Of that group, 57% of those people who um, talked about discrimination and persecution believe that Christians experience lots of discrimination in America. So 57% of white evangelical um, Protestants believe that. Only 44% of that same group believe that Muslims experience discrimination or persecution. However, uh, we know that of hate crimes that happen in America, um, 20% 2% 2% of those happen to Muslims, and they only make up 1% of America, so they have a lot of the hate crimes against them, even for a small group of religion, people who um, are Muslim in America. Christians experience hate crimes at least half um, as much as Muslims do, and have a lot more Christians in America. So here's the thing about these these statistics. You can feel like you are being discriminated against when in practice, it actually is different. So I think here's the thing that you, um, there's a difference between discrimination and persecution and everybody agreeing with you. Those are two different things, right? So just because your group isn't in control, doesn't mean that you are being persecuted against and it's important to realize that jesus when he became when he came as the messiah the the jewish people what they wanted was a ruler who came with power who was a ruler and would knock down the roman government and that they could have power over um that they could have power over these other people, the people that were different than them. But that isn't how Jesus came. He could have done that, but he chose instead to come and choose to be persecuted and to um, not have power over others, that that is how the kingdom of heaven works. So it's important for us to look at this and say, okay, blessed are those who are persecuted. What that is talking about are people who are persecuted because of their work for justice. A work that is acknowledging that everybody is important. Everybody's voice matters. Everybody's quality of life matters in the kingdom of God. All right. So those are the three blessed people, groups of people that we're talking about today. So I just want to end Um, being an example of a peacemaker, and say as an Ohioan that Michigan does not suck, um, nor the people from Michigan. They actually are a lot like the people from Ohio. They both put way too much emphasis on college football. And in the kingdom of God, not only is it important that we are peacemakers, but it's also important that we love our enemies. And we're gonna talk about that more next week. Um, and so uh, I hope that you will come back. I think it's important, especially be right before a big election in our country. It's important for us to talk about what it means to love our enemies. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you that we get to be near you, not because we earn it with our behavior, but that we get to see you and be near you because you loved us first and it causes us to love you, Lord. I pray that that would be true of us. Lord, help us be peacemakers. Help us to work for justice. Help us to know what is true persecution and to um, fight against that but also to recognize that we can find joy and flourishing even in a place where um we might suffer for um, our work for justice lord that you are um, in control of this kingdom lord and you are breaking through um through our efforts and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Um, I pray for our time in small groups that uh, we would listen to one another and learn from one another. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.